Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Jen and Bridger and I are here uh, via the internet. We are not live and in person, so you may notice (laughs) the sound quality being a little bit different, but um, we're continuing our Back to Basics series. So if you guys are following along and you want to get out your books, we're going to be hanging out on page 19, 20, 21, 22, right there in that range. Um, And our goal is to get through those four pages. I think we're going to do that today, guys. Think so. Uh, Finish chapter one. What a concept. Right. <laughs> um, so, so to just kind of uh, give the arc of the last several um, episodes that we've done, we had that conversation with Bruce Ecker around memory reconsolidation. If you haven't listened to that, please go listen to it. If you have, go listen again because it's that good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then we'll have this episode. And then coming next, we're going to have uh, Caleb Boston with us, a dear friend and one of our co-conspirators and all things um, to talk about information processing. And so this episode is kind of sandwiched between two really meaty theoretical concepts that are at the absolute foundation of what EMDR is. Um, so our thought was we'll have a little bit more of a relational and human exploration of the topics on these pages. Um, and so to introduce the, the focal point, we're going to be talking about theoretical convergences, which is a fun phrase. What do you guys think of first when I say theoretical convergences? Well, I think I'm, I'm already primed based on knowing what we're going to talk about, but otherwise I'd probably hear that and be like, what? What, <laughs> what are they even talking about? To me, I just Sounds see... boring. <laughs> Come on, Jen, don't hurt people's feelings. Uh, I see like multiple streams coming together in a river. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a an appropriate metaphor to, to visualize what we're going to be talking about Um And I think that remembering when this was written uh, is important as we have this conversation because, you know, this text was at the very beginning of it all before a lot of theoretical entanglements and ways of doing EMDR had gotten squished and meshed and melded with lots of different kinds of therapies. I mean, nowadays we have EMDR with equestrian therapy, right? This is how precise we've gotten <laughs> in the um, the ways of working with EMDR. But way back at the beginning, the two focuses that Francine had in this section um, was CBT uh, with a primary focus on uh, prolonged exposure therapy. So we can talk about that for a second because that's important. Um, and then also uh, psychodynamic Um, And using that in combination with EMDR, because at that point, those were really the two fields that were the most prominent um, in the therapeutic world, specifically for the diagnosis of PTSD, which is what she's talking about in this section. Um, So what kind of comes to mind for you guys first when we think about combining EMDR with CBT? Hmm. How's that? I like your faces. Nobody else can see your faces and your raised eyebrows right now. <laughs> it's so interesting because it, 
when I think about the combination of EMDR with CBT, it has a much more like top down feel for me. Mm-hmm. And the way that I know that we all practice and really teach EMDR is from a much more of a bottom up perspective. And so mm-hmm. in that, like really seeing the body as the the first and most important piece of the process and then and utilizing the system of EMDR to move from the body through the emotions and affect, then finally into cognition. I think that's, it's a very different way of doing it than if we work top down with an emphasis on cognition and emphasis mm-hmm. on the storytelling of the experience. Mm-hmm. And so in that bottom up approach, CBT fits really perfectly into like, hey, it's a resource. It's a preparation tool and it has its use there. But when we really get into the trauma reprocessing, there's not a whole lot of emphasis on cognition and shifting cognition. It's a product of the work we do, but it's not the initial focus. Mm-hmm. If we practice EMDR with more of a top down, it fit, it does fit more into the targeting piece, like the actual reprocessing or emphasizing cognition more. Our inner weaves are more cognitively focused um, and it shows up more throughout the whole process. But mm-hmm. I think in my bottom up way of working, I see it mostly as a preparation tool, and then kind of a product of the work we've done at the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, I hear that as the first theory being looked at for the topic of theoretical convergence as something almost like a comment on the time of the publication and where EMDR came from, where CBT was really ramping up in its uh, numbers of clinicians being trained in it, its recognition yeah. from the scientific and empirical community for its effectiveness, especially with disorders that were prior to that um, not treatable in a standardized way. Um, before prolonged exposure, you know, PTSD was something that we didn't really have like a good way of saying, here's what you need. And so yeah. the cognitive scientists taking that into, well, the reason that works is because it does a soothing and a reinforming of a schema or cognition. And so you get both of those together and that's what you really need to get over PTSD, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And so I hear almost in the, between the lines of what Francine is writing is that EMDR is a way of embracing the realizations found in the CBT revolution and integrating even still more of what I hear you talking about, Jen, with like a bottom-up and body-focused orientation. So if you look at that assessment, just even on the paper, it does seem like it's wedding together CBT and Mm -hmm. psychodynamic. (laughs) Like it's, It's kind of already bringing them together, even if just you're looking at the elements of the assessment phase. So I think that's, for me, what comes up with that. I, just like you, Jen, I prefer, and almost it's just now second nature of the bottom-up. The cognition is, you know, to me, less important. If we've got congruence and um, cohesivity in the bottom up from the body scan and the feeling and the distress is connected or correlated to that and we can watch it go down and stress release and tension release, we're going to see the things we want to. You can be whatever positive cognition comes in later. Mm -hmm. But if we see those things, it's going to be a good outcome more than likely for the client. Yeah, I think it's interesting to me when I um, read where things were at the time of the writing of this book, at least the first edition of it, um, there was this sense that particularly with prolonged exposure therapy, that it kind of was a bottom-up way of working. It was at that point such a novel idea of, oh my gosh, we're like exposing the person and they're having big reactions in their body. And, you know, we're seeing these powerful changes happen, but because it was happening within the theoretical framework of CBT, the way they interpreted that change process was, oh, well, that experience is disconfirming the maladaptive belief, right? And so the belief changes and that's why it's working, right? And so I think that part of why it was effective is because they were disconfirming a core experience, but they were trying to track it through the cognition. But in reality, the body was very involved. If you've ever witnessed or been a part of a prolonged exposure experience, it is a highly somatic experience <laughs> in many ways. Um, so the, the strange thing was, is like, I think they were doing some bottom up work, but their interpretation was still very top down 
which yeah. meant they, they were uh, missing how to partner with the, the change process in a, a deeper, more bottom-up way. Um, but Francine's uh, focus, at least in this section, seems to be that she's putting EMDR out there and saying, look, EMDR is doing what you're doing in these models, right? It's, it's a, uh, a relevant partner if you are using CBT. It's a relevant partner if you're doing prolonged exposure, even if you're doing psychodynamic right? EMDR can come alongside of a psychodynamic approach and um, be effective and be helpful. And so sort of this uh, desire to come alongside of some of the big dominant theoretical models that were happening and having a lot of influence and um, joining the party (laughs) and saying, we're not competing, right? Uh, We don't have to compete. And I think that that approach in many ways was really wise of EMDR came along not to compete with the models that were there, but to say um, this this can be a help to your goals, regardless of how you are approaching the the work theoretically. Um, now I think EMDR has taught us a lot as clinicians, and so now we turn around and look at these theoretical models differently because of what EMDR has taught us. But at this point in history, that that is not what was happening. Um, it was think- still very much a, a joining. Yeah, I think there's something so fascinating about the just looking at a uh, overview of the field at that time because what I think goes under the radar is the philosophical assumptions of these different intervention approaches. Just an easy example is like where do symptoms come from? You know, you mentioned with the prolonged exposure that if you change the cognition, the distress will go away. Mm-hmm. And that is a very bold claim. It's a theory. And so the interventions are then pointed at making that theory realized in the therapeutic encounter between the client and the therapist. But that's where, again, when you look at EMDR as an intervention, it could be incorporated into CBT in that way, adopting all of the epistemological or like the beliefs of where symptoms come from and saying, yeah, we just need to focus on those cognitions and get that distress down and then find new behaviors that carry out that cognition into Mm -hmm. the world. But when you look at EMDR from a therapeutic approach standpoint, it actually has a very different belief or philosophy as to where symptoms come from and what we should do about it in the session to actually bring about change for the client. Yeah. Bridger, you and I were reflecting earlier that this chapter feels a bit like a, a scattershot uh, or a, a scatterblot chapter of like, here, let me say a bunch of different things and I promise they're all relevant somehow. <laughs> and yeah. to me, it feels like the the energy behind this chapter is um, I'm not trying to compete, but please hear what I'm saying. It's super important. Like I, I, I want this to get out there and I'm willing to kind of make some sacrifices theoretically and show how I'm not trying to compete with you. Um, but I do think at the heart of the work, Francine was committed to this new understanding through AIP and was trying to present it in a way that would be accepted and palatable to the world that she was attempting to enter into which is, you know, is such a, a normal human need uh, to be accepted. We have to jump through some hoops. So I do sense this in reading this of just the academic hoop jumping that was likely occurring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As you were, Bridger, as you were reflecting on all of that, it left me in this like place of just seeing the and knowing the versatility of what EMDR has to offer, like the fact that it can be used to enhance something like CBT. Like we could be working a CBT focused process and we can bring in EMDR to um, try to enhance and and bring resources to help shift that cognition and to reduce the association and connection to the negative cognition. But also, and that's more of that intervention. Like if we're just going to use it as intervention, we bring it in to further enhance maybe what we're already doing in another theoretical approach. And it's really great in that way. If we're going to use it as its own theoretical orientation that more integrates these other theoretical approaches, um, it becomes more holistic and integrative. It looks different. It, it can feel different than that. And it's going after more of, you know, talking about where does the symptom come from? It's not just the focus of shifting the cognition. Now we're looking at what are the originating experiences. 
That's but right. to not take yeah. away from it, we can use it in both ways and that it doesn't always just have to be, you know, the huge, the bigger picture. Sometimes with clients, it's a really acute focus. Like we're coming in and doing something really focused and um, direct and we're taking care of that and, and we're done and we're not using a full treatment approach or developmental treatment approach with every client. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it... It feels like, just to sum that up, it feels like Francine was entering an either-or conversation to say yes and. Mm -hmm. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, like, you can feel her, um, you know, passion behind uh, moving this into wider acceptance while also towing the line (laughs) and not ruffling feathers unnecessarily she was certainly not afraid to ruffle feathers and there's plenty of evidence of that but there there is some uh, academic carefulness I think that's occurring here I, yeah. I do think that um, you know there's plenty of clinicians that find themselves in clinical settings where they're being asked to work in a way that prioritizes approaches like CBT that even if they would you know personally prefer a more bottom-up way, Um, You know, there's plenty of institutions and clinical settings where we are given pretty explicit direction about how we're to work, certainly how we write it in notes. (laughs) And so I I think there is some guidance here of when we're doing EMDR and we might have to be working within that paradigm, how can I show that EMDR is supportive of that paradigm, right? That I'm not doing anything that's in conflict with, uh, far from it. And so there's still relevance and usefulness when we find ourselves in those clinical settings. Yeah, I, I can't say enough about some of the assumptions that we carry when that we aren't even aware of when we're looking at something versus like at something as a symptomological problem or a you know making sense of problem in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, the symptomological focus, even if you're required to put a diagnosis, there's an unconscious assumption in that that the symptoms that create the you know justification for the diagnosis are the problem, mm-hmm. and so you need to treat the symptoms to take care of the disorder. Mm-hmm. I feel like if we were to say that to a group of therapists, we'd get a mixed response mm-hmm. because it becomes explicit now. You're called out for the philosophy that says, do the symptoms actually cause the disorder or are the symptoms a byproduct of the disorder? Right. And but without saying it out loud, we just unconsciously adopt those assumptions and now we're chasing diagnostic categories and trying to intervention it to get it down. Well, Bridger, you just kind of blew up this whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> like, Maybe let's, let's just take that part out. No, <laughs> well, and I, I think as you're saying that, like even though EMDR comes in seeing that the symptoms are a product of the original problem. Like that's its foundational tenet of we're focusing on past experiences. But as you said before, Francine is still towing the line of the book itself is written very diagnostically. Like, and if you have this diagnosis Mm -hmm. or this diagnosis, it's still written through the lenses of seeing symptoms in these categories and that classifying, you know, a certain protocol or approach that we need to have. And I mean, there's tons of wisdom we can draw from that, but a lot in the way that we practice it beyond with EMDR is like next step, even further away from mm-hmm. diagnosis. We're seeing these symptoms as strategies to the nervous mm-hmm. system of how it learned to survive and adapt to those circumstances. And so that even changes more what we're looking at targeting like what are those, what are the possible resources? Um, it just yeah. gives a whole another perspective to the treatment approach. Yeah. I think with Francine also including the psychodynamic perspective, there is a conscient, a conscious balancing of both of those philosophical mm-hmm. kind of paradigms because the psychodynamic realm has the language of strategies in, in lieu of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so even in that, there's like a wedding together at the introductory chapter of the book that says here are two worlds that we're entering into uh, from a symptom origin standpoint and what are we going to do with this with with EMDR Um, that this comes from a systemic dysfunction in the psychodynamic world and non-conscious projections into the present moment again psychodynamic or in the cognitive behavioral realm where 
yes, life has happened to you up until this point, but it's really an issue with your conscious thought and your mm. ability to control your own behaviors than it is uh, anything outside of, of your conscience awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting that out of all of the models that she could have chosen to speak to so early on, that those are the two that she spoke to directly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that's very telling of the situation that she was entering into. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so going back to that uh, concept of theoretical convergences, she sort of lines out the convergence of, okay, here's EMDR with CBT and PE. Here's EMDR with psychodynamic. So to fill in the gap of the last several decades, since this was initially written and now we have many tributaries and tiny creeks and streams of convergences <laughs> that have come forth. <laughs> We have EMDR for everything and with every theoretical model. Um, and all of us, you know, artist therapists out there have been uh, wielding this new um, <laughs> medium in all kinds of creative ways, which I think is wonderful. I, I see very little downside to it. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm curious to, to think together about, do we see pros and cons of that evolution of EMDR being done in so many different ways and with so many different things? Um, Is there a a danger of dilution or is it a beautiful extrapolation or some of both? What do you guys think? I'm going to let you answer first, Bridget. I'm going to say, I got got big eyebrows again. (laughs) Well, I'm just so excited that we're recording this because I feel like it's, it's a really timely discussion for um, our field. Um, mm. I've had very intimate conversations with a lot of different people that I feel like would answer along that spectrum. Some people believing it is the plague that's facing EMDR right now, <laughs> and some that would say it's the savior of yes. what's facing EMDR right now. And so I'm just kind of seeing a flash of faces on Zoom screens that I've had over the past couple of years of people that I've connected with that I think would feel very strongly on different mm-hmm. sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I think for myself, you know, just coming out of of um, years of like the academic think tank thing, um, <laughs> when you introduce an openness to convergence and theoretical integration into a standardized process, you run a large risk of any scientific validity or reliability in your predictions of what outcomes are going to you know, happen. Now, I need to make it clear for myself, I actually think that's a problem with the paradigm as opposed to the intervention, not the other way around. But when you think about the scientific method, you're introducing a volatile variable that then you can't actually predict its outcome. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying like from the scientific side of things, it is a big problem. So when you talk about ethical um, fidelity of implementing EMDR, if you start introducing an openness in their posture to integrating whatever, then yeah, you're going to have some some people that get really upset Mm -hmm. and worry, perhaps rightfully so, Mm-hmm. that some bad things could happen in the outcomes that we didn't have any ability to predict. And so you should just stick to the eight phases. You should go back to a, a more conservative, fidelitous application of EMDR, mm-hmm. and that's the safe way to be a good therapist. Okay, so Bridger, I'm, I'm going to punt a really nice softball in your direction. Are you ready? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> But so Jen have, still needs to answer. I'm not no, going to be no, the only know, one that dies on this I hill. Want to, <laughs> I want you to answer this because it's it's a continuation of what you're saying. And I, I sort of want you to say it in more explicit terms. Okay. Um, so I happen to know due to recent conversations that part of your dissertation focus is in the conversation around, is our field a quantitative field or a qualitative <laughs> field? So that distinction yeah. is really relevant right here. So uh, I think that's you enough. You can say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can you just say what that means and, and why it's relevant to this conversation? Yeah. Um, I've had to work on the elevator pitch to this uh, for um, almost six months now. So here we go. Um, <laughs> to me, I think the argument is uh, absurd that it's a quantitative field. I think Um, If you look at the foundations of psychotherapy, yes, it comes from the medical model, 
in psychoanalysis at first, but the moment it found its application in the room, intersubjectivity became captivating to every theorist, every philosopher of science, every person who was thinking about this. And we fundamentally saw, though I believe it was implicitly, which I think is a big problem in our contemporary scene, we, we in, instantly saw it as a qualitative moment of connection. But there's a big problem when we haven't been articulating the means of justifying the validity of the qualitative mode of psychotherapy. We've been forced to fit into the box of a quantitative paradigm. So there's a mismatch, I think, that's also really validating to the therapist in the room who says, in order to justify the validity of my practice, I have to do so quantitatively. And yet I believe in the qualitative connection and mechanism of change that is when we spend time together with a shared goal, a shared understanding, and some really helpful tools that'll help us accomplish these things together. I think that's where we really just have a hard conversation ahead of us, which is the, t- the subject of my dissertation, um, about having an awareness of the non-conscious insidious adoptions we make when we practice qualitatively but have to justify ourselves quantitatively. Yeah, that statement is like super, super dense, and we do not have time to unpack it all, but I just want to highlight it and say, to be continued, you will eventually say much more than that about it. (laughs) Yeah, email me if you want to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) When the protocol is developed as a response to a quantitative like research, um, it it does feel, and some as someone who's practicing it, it feels like it limits the qualitative, the relational mm-hmm. aspect and freedom in it. It makes it much more protocolized and rigid and structured. And I think that system has kind of set up a space for people to ha- maybe have instincts or desires to function outside of that and integrate more creativity, integrate other approaches, integrate aspects of their own subjectivity and the subjectivity of the client. But then feeling like if I do that, I'm, so, I'm breaking the rules or I'm, I'm not practicing EMDR, I'm not doing it right, I'm not doing it well. Um, and a, a timidness around that. And I think that's what I see so much in the consultation process is people having these beautiful instincts of how to be responsive to the person they're working with, but but restricting those instincts um, and sticking really strict to what is the certain protocol or the script that I'm supposed to follow. And I think there's a balance. Um, I think without the script and the protocol, we would be nowhere close to where we are in the field of EMDR and without the research behind it. But when it becomes limiting to our ability to engage in that relational connection um, and follow some of those um, desires or instincts in that dynamic that can really create beautiful opportunities for healing, I think Mm -hmm. it can be very limiting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The analogy that's coming to mind is what, well, I was, recently trying to teach my daughter how to draw like when she sees me doodle while I'm you know working she wants to draw what mommy drew and uh Mm. um so I was you know referencing it's like well how do you teach one to draw (laughs) this is not a thing that I do I just draw um but then I I had this sort of awareness of every good artist I know not that I'm putting myself in that category, but I love to draw. Um, you copy first, right? Like, like if you if you want to know how to draw a mushroom, what you do nowadays is you get on Pinterest and you look at other people's drawings of mushrooms and you copy a few. And then after you've done that a few times, you now know how to draw a mushroom, right? You you have the the shapes in your mind and your hand has made the movements, etc. So I'm teaching Honora how to draw and basically creating a little dot to dot situation for her to follow um, so that she can replicate. And then, you know, she's five. So pretty quickly, she's annoyed with my dot to dots and is creating her own mushroom varietal. (laughs) Um, But I, I think that 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 distinction of the basic protocol is a dot to dot drawing. Start here and go from one to two and two to three. And at the end of it, you will have drawn a picture of an EMDR session. And that is one way of doing it. And that is how we all must begin. And there is so much importance to doing it that way. But there is also this incredibly um, real limitation. And 
it, it feels like such a desire in most of our bodies to let go of the dot to dot as soon as I am able to. And yet in our field, we feel little permission to do so. And so when I see all of these interesting creative integrations that are happening in the field and this move into a more qualitative understanding of our work, um, that's what it feels like to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that research is going to be the best judge of whether that was a good idea in the same way that research can't tell us if somebody's art is beautiful or not. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's not the right measurement tool. Um, and even finding the right measurement tool to, to determine what art is relevant and what is not um, is difficult. And so I think for, for therapists, like there is that question for us of, do we feel permission to be artistic in our work, to let go, um, but also to remember how we learned originally and come back to that basic process whenever it's relevant and whenever we need to, and that we all have to learn that way originally. Yeah. Those on the spectrum that we were speaking about earlier, that would say like, that's the beginning of the end to EMDR. Like it is going to be the yeah. plague. Um, I think that there's a, a real argument in that. And for others saying like, oh no, this is where EMDR is going to grow and flourish and, and it's not going to die out the way other protocols and standardized ways of working have because we can merge it with other beautiful interventions and approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like right answers and it just <laughs> feels like <laughs> it's impossible to find. Um, yeah, because I think there's such strong argument on each end of that spectrum and everywhere along the way. And so to me, it's about a balance and recognizing the utility of the research around it and the utility of standardized, more rigid, strict process. And then also being able to feel through those moments to say, this is when it's it's most useful to like step away from that. If I, in my sessions, I'm not looking for anything uh, quantitative. It, mm-hmm. it serves me zero purpose in my mm-hmm. session. And so the, with those clients, my best outcomes are going to be to lean into that qualitative or to lean into that relational piece, to lean into my creativity and instincts and, and their responses in the session. But it doesn't mean that there isn't utility to something more standardized in other right. settings. And it's still beneficial and helpful to the field and for advancements. Yeah, I think with the the spectrum we've laid out, one commonality, regardless of where you fall, is that you have to have some answer to what are you going to do to help the people that you see. Like all along that spectrum, whether you're super rigid to the eight phase protocol and the original, you know, dissemination of the theory, or you're, yeah, let's integrate anything that comes to us because we trust the relationship more than the tool you still have to have a way of responding to what are you going to do to help this person who comes in talking about these certain things. And that's where I think it's a much more useful conversation to have around trusting one another because Melissa, with your example of helping Enora learn to draw, one of the gaps between that analogy and the EMDR world is that you trust Enora. You trust her <laughs> to create something, whatever it's yeah. going to be, and you're going to be okay with it. And if she draws something that doesn't look like a mushroom, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, exactly. Whereas with the EMDR world, that trust is not there. That's and true. there even is a belief that if you don't draw the mushroom, I don't know if you should be allowed to draw anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, what I really feel is like a devastating, again, I think it's mostly implicit. I don't think very many people actually believe that explicitly, but there's a felt sense that creates a lot of really frantic behavior um, that when we don't know if we're doing EMDR correctly, that maybe I just shouldn't get to do it anymore or somebody's going to come after me and tell me I can't. Right. Well, I think like all of this is highlighting the need for more qualitative inquiry and and qualitative um, expression around our work. Um, because I think that it is that kind of writing and that kind of research that actually um, soothes those fears, right? Like maybe, I've never had this thought before, so this is happening in real time, 
maybe our pervasive struggle in our field with imposter syndrome is directly tied to our overemphasis on quantitative versus qualitative research and expression. Like that seems like a worthwhile hypothesis to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and so I'm also realizing that we're using researchy terms and some people may not feel super familiar with what all of this means. So I want to give an example that most people know Um so quantitative is things that are immeasurable. There's usually numbers involved and we're looking at like statistical analysis and percentages and things like that. Qualitative, um, you probably have encountered qualitative research from Brene Brown. She is, she is a classic example at this point that most people have read at least something of, of somebody that took qualitative research and really robustly presented a body of research that was based on conversation with human beings about their lived experience. (laughs) And it has been incredibly influential. And one of the things that has been so potent about her work is the sense of permission and relatability. And that is Mm -hmm. the, the gift of qualitative research is that humanity is front and center in the work. And as therapists, I think we're, we're starving for that. Um, so a, a qualitative research process on EMDR would be fascinating. Somebody should do that yeah. someday. Well, and <laughs> Melissa, I was just finishing up editing some stuff. And so I was listening to part of it just to hear. It's a very interesting thing to go through where I'm listening for sound quality and then I get captivated by what was being said. And so it yeah. like rips me out of the place. But um, <laughs> you cited a study that is an incredible example of where the mismatch is in our hearts as therapists between the quantitative world we are living in to the qualitative way we practice with a statistic like, you know, the actual metric for determining a intervention's effectiveness is a 20 to 25% reduction in symptoms. Yeah. And so that's a very commonly cited statistic for uh, critiques against the evidence-based therapy mechanism of, mm-hmm. of awarding a therapy to be evidence-based. It doesn't have to have complete remission of symptoms. You'd actually be surprised to find that they only have to find a relatively small, you know, in terms of a qualitative. Deviation. Yeah. 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 Okay. 1.5 standard deviation um, from the mean of people who are presenting without any treatment. They're mm-hmm. just saying, these are my symptoms. There's a lot of problems with that um, if you really dug into it. But that to me shows quantitatively you can have an effective therapy with a 20 to 25% reduction in symptoms where qualitatively the person is still feeling pain. Right. They're still feeling like, I don't know if anything's going to help me. Um, We could do a random survey at Beyond with, with people who started day one to six months later or three months later, and they could say, I guess, yeah, on paper, I'm different, but I still feel mm-hmm. pain. I'm still mm-hmm. afraid, or I still don't know what this means for this relationship. Mm-hmm. I don't think we would look at those and say, well, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You're 20% done. Like you're, you're 20% better. And so yeah. you're done with our treatment center. Yeah. We've maxed out the standard deviation that is reliably achieved through these methods. <laughs> Yeah, you're welcome. And yet, like, and yeah, so, like. yeah, that's true. Well, and the other thing that happens is that when when we as therapists are told, well, these treatments are effective, and by effective, we're using that definition of a twenty to twenty five percent reduction. And the therapist quantitatively like, effective. Quantitatively, that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And, and then qualitatively, the human therapist is sitting in a session, going, "My people are not getting better the way that I feel like they they should be." And there's nothing wrong with what they're doing because they are getting the the normal uh, change that we expect with these methods. And so they move into self-blame. And that's what I mean by I think that's where all the imposter syndrome comes from. There's an assumption that if I'm being told that these things work and they don't seem to be working, then it must be my fault. And, and here we are as a field with a whole bunch of people that feel like they are failing at their job when in actuality they're achieving the same results as all of our evidence-based therapies. (laughs) Um, Now, I do want to say that EMDR does get uh, better results than one standard deviation. (laughs) Quantitatively, that that has been demonstrated more than once. Um, So that is not all approaches. And that's one of the reasons why EMDR has gained popularity, because it managed to break through the glass ceiling of that 20 to 25% success rate. Mm -hmm. So can can we get personal? What the per, the success rate is 
Uh, well, so spe- speaking of our scattering, uh, it really depends on the population and the who and how. Like we have many different statistics, which is um, probably more accurate that there's so many uh, variables to consider in the effectiveness of EMDR that we can no longer have one number that means much yeah. of anything. This is a big, you asked a very big question there, Jen, um, because <laughs> there are reports that I've seen just in the past five years that it's less effective than CBT. And some reports that I've seen that it more than triples the effect size of CBT. <laughs> so I think, and again, the I know this is my bias. It's so reliable, Bridger. <laughs> oh, I forgot. You're right. I'm sorry. I know it's my bias, but I'm just mm-hmm. saying, I think that's a problem with the mechanism of measurement and philosophy mm-hmm. as opposed to the intervention or the people actually participating in the study. But that paradigm would critique the intervention and the participants more than it would look at itself. And I think that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'm curious if you guys would uh, speak a little bit to at this point in your career, how do you find yourselves integrating and weaving together EMDR with other ways of working therapeutically and also just noticing how you weave it into your personality and personhood as a therapist, because I think that's the biggest integration of all. Yeah. It's interesting to think of the journey of like professional development as an EMDR therapist and what my sessions looked like, you know, a decade ago compared to what they may look like now. And even my training process, like, oh my gosh, I used to take so many like webinars and trainings on EMDR and fill in the blank. Yeah. <laughs> and those have come to serve me really well as a consultant now, but I didn't, that wasn't my intention at the time. It was just like, oh, I need to know exactly what rule has to change in EMDR <laughs> protocol in order for me to now use it with EMDR and IFS, EMDR and like fill in Attachment like, work. Yes, yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> and so protocols, um, trainings, books, like consultation of someone who specializes in, okay, EMDR with disordered eating. And let me talk to you. And how does, how do you merge those into what it feels like now is less of getting lost in every single diagnosis, kind of where Bridget was talking before of like, shifting into more of seeing like, what is at the root of, of all of this? Rather than a um, getting in the weeds, okay, this certain diagnosis must mean A, B, and C, and therefore it has to be merged like very strategically with that, and more of looking at everything, absolutely everything, as a unique manifestation of trauma and an adaptive nature to the environment that this human being was, you know, developing in. Mm-hmm. And when you can simplify it down to, and that's not simple, but when you can simplify it down to like those core things, to me, I feel less uh, interested in and overwhelmed by having to know all of the like specific interventions and ways to adapt and special protocols and more of like, no, we're actually really treating core attachment wounds, Mm -hmm. early development Uh, We're treating these core things in all presentations and the symptoms are just a really unique, nuanced way that they learned how to survive their environment. Um, And it it simplifies it a lot for me. It it makes it so it's less of, okay, this client has this diagnosis. Now let me flip through my manual of this is exactly what I need to do. And it makes it much more relational and organic and natural to say, we can still treat it the same with an emphasis on attachment, with an emphasis on the bottom up, the body really holding the greatest source of information into what those experiences were. Um, and I think that's where like my sessions really fall at this point. And sometimes I lean over into like, hey, we can use a special tool here, special protocol, special resource. But for the most part, it feels just so much more natural and organic to just a psychotherapy process and that EMDR is kind of holding it as a theoretical orientation, not just an intervention that comes in. I'm curious, Jen, and this is kind of to me what I hope the rest of this conversation can be is just us 
answering to what does it actually look like for you? Um, because if you're not just meeting somebody going through the informed consent process to do EMDR and beginning history taking, what are you doing? That feels like the hardest question. Though, I know. <laughs> one section every two hours every week looks like we're laying on the floor on that <laughs> with soft music and a candle and incense. And um, sometimes, you know, that could manifest into anything, right? Like sometimes um, she's no, I'm a, a blanket's being wrapped around her while she's rocking back and forth and we're integrating and installing something. Sometimes we're uh, just talking. Another session would be we're walking around the neighborhood and we're talking and processing. And then another session, maybe I literally have the light bar on a table in front of their face and I have my paper and my pen and I'm marking down certain things that they're saying. Um, and it looks much more like a standard process Another session maybe where they're playing in the sandbox and they're creating an image and their bilaterals are on going on and the buzzers on under their legs while they create imagery in the sand. Um, so it can look so different. It doesn't look like any one way where a fly on the wall would say like, is this even EMDR sometimes? And then other times they'd be like, oh yeah, this is textbook, could be on a video in a training somewhere. This is what EMDR looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's all of that changing yeah. all the time. I know it's not a conscious a conscious thought of I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this, or at least I just because I know you, I I don't think that's happening in your mind as you're sitting with them. But again, just in the spirit of this conversation, I'm just wondering if you could just at looking at that wide spectrum. How do you know which way to go with it? With what? With, with what kind? Yeah, like which with what kind? Because this is the answer I want all of us to try and give. Of like, given the diversity of how all of our sessions look, how do we go? Which direction we end up going with the client? Yeah, my my way of I feel like teaching this more than actually explicitly thinking it in session. Because you're right, it doesn't feel like it's this like thought out, planned out thing. But I find a theme like my um, with every client, I have a theme. I have a the metaphor I use is like we have our main quest and I have my side quest. And that is like the my number one focus, like whatever they're identifying as the focus is the, the one that we're explicitly communicating. About, oh, we're going to target this one thing or, oh, we're going to prepare you for your job interview or we have an identified focus. But then my side quest is a bigger theme and it boils down to a few usually um, a client's feeling safe enough to fully express themselves is a really common theme that comes in um, feeling safe in connection with another person to feel known and felt by another and for that to be safe. There's several others, but they kind of boil down to these few themes that come up. And then every decision I make in therapy and whatever we do and however I respond, whatever question I ask is in honor of that theme and trying to create new felt experiences around that, to create new disconfirming experiences and to identify where was that originally learned? Like where were those messages of it's not safe to be in connection with people or it's not safe to be who I am and express who I am? Where did that originate from? Um, And how do we process the experiences that created that understanding and how do we disconfirm those in our present interaction? Jen, I bet a whole bunch of people just got out pen and paper and were like furiously taking notes about this treatment plan that you just outlined. <laughs> At least that's well, what I'm imagining. We, I would, I feel like I would love to put pen and paper to it myself. I talk about oh, it yeah. so much in consultation. Yes, yes. Um, but it is, it's, it's one of those, it's like the side quest is what guides my gut in the session. That's what like leads me in all of those interactions. And then we have our identified like target or treatment goal that feels like it can guide. Sometimes it it pacifies our minds a little bit 
Um, it entertains and stimulates us cognitively. We know we're working on this and maybe it's identified on their treatment plan. But that like gut level, this is the the kind of the flavor and the essence of everything we're going to do. It's going to be focused on this deeper theme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I could simply say ditto and it would be true. Um, I think that's probably true for all three of us. And what's fascinating to me is while that is almost universal, the ways that we go about crafting experiences for our client are really diverse, which I think is so cool. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's that convergence of theoretical, um, yeah, orientations and also just our, our personhood, um, getting blended with our work and, um, the way that we track and sense and intuitively know things and feel guided, you know, by our guts (laughs) in the middle of a, a process, I think is, uh, really individualized. And yet what you just outlined feels near universal. Like that, Mm. that could be everybody's treatment plan and it would feel true, um, with very minor alterations, but the way that we go about it is very individualized. Mm -hmm. I love that concept of the way we craft the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, that feels so true to what the moment feels like. I had a, a client, it was a week or two ago who, she had let me know she was sick before she was going to come in and said, do you want me to not come? And I said, please come. I, my kids have all been sick. I'm, I'm pretty resilient. I'm, I'm pretty resilient. <laughs> You're fine. I'm sure I have built up my immunity. Um, and knowing that and knowing her really well, I knew how significant the experience of like being ill is for her on many levels. Um, the, the theme of it's, it's not okay for me to not be okay. That's one that has been very present in her life, um, as well as I can't trust that I'll ever be taken care of by somebody else. Um, I always have to take care of myself. And so the experience I crafted, I love that language, was I made sure I got to the session early and I set up our room. She's the client who we do the yoga mats on the floor. Mm -hmm. I had it all set up for her instead of doing it together. And she walked in and it was done. And I said, I I knew you didn't feel well. And so I didn't want you to have to do any of this. Like I wanted Mm -hmm. you just to, to come in and lay down first thing. And like that experience was not just like, oh, this will be a kind thing to do. It had tremendous intention in it for me that was, you know, focused on those themes. And so even though our identified topic, she was going to tell me about some things that had been going on with her kids and some things Mm -hmm. at work. But those moments then for us to say, what was it like to walk in and have all of this done? What does it feel like to know that I want to take care of you? In this moment, I want you to feel taken care of when you don't feel well. Mm -hmm. All of that became huge, deep, meaningful moments on the themes that we've been kind of the side quest and had nothing to do with the identified topic of the session. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just such a a good uh, example and articulation of the way that I think our um, unfolding process with, with clients go. It's that... Uh, you know, we're holding multiple threads and uh, making edits within these different schemas as opportunities present themselves. Um, but it really is a very dynamic and fluid and responsive and unscripted uh, interaction. Like it is so unscripted <laughs> in the actual unfolding of it. And even when the script is there, it, it, uh, rarely feels like it's doing the majority of the heavy lifting of the session. Like it's, it's really, for me, the script is about speed and efficiency so that I can get to the part where we're crafting that experience and uh, allowing their body to, to soak up the new sensation of uh, being cared for or whatever it is that we're working on. Um, EMDR basic protocol scripts, I use them constantly for efficiency, for yeah. speed, for, um, yeah, just like, let, let's get it done. Let's get to the point. <laughs> They're really great at getting to the point, but once you're to the point, then something else has to emerge. And, uh, I, I think that's where the, the creativity and the, the craft of all of this really begins to emerge. And I think one of my favorite things about beyond is the fact that we're all doing the same thing so differently. 
mm-hmm. and that we get to put it on display for each other. And I have this like deep desire to start showing more how different and same it is because I think it will blanket mm-hmm. our field with permission to find your unique individuality um, with fidelity because it is absolutely possible. Yeah. Bridger, what's it look like in a session for you? How would you describe yeah, I, I really liked your use of the word themes um, because for me and the side quests, obviously major <laughs> proponent of side quests um, for me, I have this internal experience of listening and organizing while attending to how the client is showing up. I know that sounds obvious, but for me, it's a really deliberate practice that I'm engaging with in each of the clients that I'm, that I'm sitting with. And very similarly to you, Melissa, I use the script language a lot for efficiency because mm-hmm. as somebody, you know, just in normal language is describing an experience, there's a lot of fluff, mm-hmm. um, a lot of meaning made of the experience, a lot of interpretation. Oh, yeah. yeah, totally. And so I get that. And I think the scripts are really good at kind of cutting through that, even just like the worst part to question. Like, as you think of that now, what's the worst part that stands out? And they'll throw in all kinds of different things. And then I think the evaluation or assessment questions are great at even presenting a mirror to the client to show the distress and the connected beliefs that are around it. Um, but from there, it does. that's to me where it starts to look very different depending on who I'm sitting with. Because for some, they're, I, I truly believe they're best just sitting in their BLS with the tappers, eyes closed, very, very vanilla, <laughs> like EMDR setup. Um, but then others, it, it's more associative and the BLS to them feels um, like nothing happens. Like I'm not getting anything. <laughs> I'm not getting anything. And for me, I don't see that as like a barrier. I see it as their system saying there's another way into this. And so I'm very open with with those individuals to maybe not look so here's the tappers in your hand and I'm going to go set by set and we're going to track the evolution of this experience, but more so let's see what it's connected to and the meaning it has for your present life. Um, and that being a really integrated way of you know validating the meaning of past experience in the present struggles they're experiencing i'm thinking of one of one guy that i work with um that so well exemplifies this process where we'll do this really natural dance between talking about something that's going on in his life right now and then you know snap of the fingers and we're talking about mom again and a very meaningful experience that was had there or the way dad never showed up or the way brother was always favored or the way, you know, my first marriage failed. And then that we just traced the link AIP, like on display, we traced the link of how the present is really dominated by the pain held in the past. And just even holding a two handed interweave together there and juxtaposing the felt resource that they have now in their life and a realization of how the pain of the past is really making them afraid to step into the present in any authentic way. And then from there, we're able to really sit together and mourn the loss of opportunity that they've had in fearing the pain of the past for so long. And that's so much more meaningful than any traditional EMDR session I've ever tried to have with him. You know, it just doesn't get there, but mm-hmm. because we're able to connect and go with the qualitative bend of the river, I think that's where we get into real change at a much faster pace than, than he's ever experienced before. Yeah. That case makes me think about it. Certain clients I'll describe, like if we just look directly at it, mm-hmm. it's going to run, it's going to hide, it's going to put up its block and barrier. But if we like, look over here at something else and we back into it, Mm. we can have a different like access to whatever that is, you know, whether it's a certain experience or it's a strategy or it's like certain feelings that they have. And so with certain clients, it's very intentional to not do standard protocol EMDR because Mm. when we do it, it is that response of like, nothing. I don't know what you're like, no, nothing's coming up or we see strategies like dissociation or um, I'm just going to say what I'm supposed to say. 
But if instead we look over here and we're just talking about all of the things of life and we're kind of backing into it, we can still get to the same place, but we can do it with more safety and kind of ease into that for clients. But then there's the clients on the other end of the spectrum who like will have this beautiful whole talk therapy session. And at the end of it, do we still have time to do that thing over there? Like, <laughs> like that has to happen or this was not a productive session. <laughs> if we didn't do yeah. the thing over there, then it doesn't count. Um, and so we'll do the thing for a little bit and it's like, okay, now I feel good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, f- I feel like, you know, several times a week I ask the question, do you want the buzzers or not? You know? Uh, cause at, at some point in the process, they, they know, they know if they need that extra, um, stimulation or regulation or, or however BLS serves their, their nervous system. Um, and it, it just feels way more organic, uh, to be able to do it that way. And I, I love the, um, the freedom and the ability to craft rather than, um, be a technician, Somebody used that yeah. phrase with me in consultation recently of, I, I, I never want to be a technician. Oh my God, no. <laughs> Nobody becomes a therapist <laughs> to be a technician. Um, and and uh, so it just feels so much better to be able to to craft together with our clients in this way and teach them to do the same thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, guys, any final thoughts on theoretical convergences? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I I love this episode. Yeah, I do too. It's super fun. Well, you go, Jen, and then I'll go. (laughs) We're all going to go at the same time. Uh, I was just going to say it's just wanting to remind um, our listeners that if if you're in this spot of wanting to figure out like how do I craft those experiences and and what does that Mm -hmm. look like in EMDR, maybe. Um, the idea of bringing EMDR into a moment that's just a genuine relational moment feels like confusing or overwhelming or how to even begin to do that. Um, we all three offer consultation packages and courses and individual consultation and would love to support you guys in just brainstorming, not by saying, hey, here's the exact protocol you need to use or the exact script you need to use, but let's hear what you're already doing. Let's hear what's feeling natural between you and your client and then talk about where EMDR can be kind of brought into that to further enhance that where it can add in the buzzers or not. Or maybe it's just the experience of it and we bring it in sessions later to part of the reprocessing. So mm-hmm. we can talk about all of those opportunities. Um, we do have an EMDR refresh course that is kind of taking through, um, taking consultees through this process of reestablishing an understanding of what are each of the eight phases, not mm-hmm. to just further reiterate and replicate them, but to be able to say, once I understand them well, I can then adapt them and personalize them and make them more relational. So if that's something that you guys are interested in, please reach out and we'll get you connected with some of our consultation services. And you can just email me at jen.savage at beyondhealingcenter.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my last thought was, I think that there may be some that would listen to all of this and say, well, then you're not doing EMDR, you're doing something else. And uh, I would say yes and no. And also I don't care. <laughs> Um, and I, I mean that with such gusto and sincerity. And the the reason for that is, um, being too strict, I hurt people being too rigid made me feel clunky and awkward. And this way of working, um, hands down qualitatively and phenomenologically, I have seen it work, um, for so many different clients and therapists at this point of, when we let go of the rigidity, we let go of fear and it really opens up a lot of creative uh, curiosity and potential in our sessions. Um, and we are still uh, showing fidelity, even if you don't find a script. And I think that what's cool about this series is that we're showing what fidelity to EMDR actually means um, outside of script following, because that's not what it actually is. At least I don't think so. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> yes. Sorry, I was muted. Um, I didn't. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, this episode will have posted right after um, 
the Bruce Ecker episode. And then we also have a interview with Rotem mm-hmm. Brayer coming out about his book, The Art and Science of EMDR. So yeah. I hope that everybody will be kind of feeling the the call to an embodied and just a live practice of EMDR, not this rigid kind of script following and not necessarily, again, I think this question or this uh, conversation is a testament to the use of the scripts, but contextualizing them in the relationship of the, of the connection you have yes. with your clients, not saying the client has to fit into the script. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And you can do dot to dot as long as you need to. If if you're new at this, don't don't feel like you have to swim in the ocean, stay in the bathtub as long as you need to. Mm. <laughs> it is safe there. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being with us on this exploration of uh, is it EMDR or is it something more? Um, and we will be back next time with Caleb to talk about the lineage of information processing research, which I am pretty dang excited about. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.